sure some of you are familiar with their, a, a fairy tale that was written by the Danish author Hans Christian Andersen about an emperor of a prosperous city who cared more about clothes than military pursuits or entertainment. He unwittingly hired two swindlers who promised him the finest suit of clothes from the most beautiful cloth that ever existed. His cloth, I should say this cloth they told him, was invisible to anyone who was either stupid or unfit for his position. You know which story I'm talking about? (laughs) Well, anyway, that emperor, he couldn't see the non-existent cloth, but he pretended that he could see it because he, he didn't want to appear to be stupid. Because only stupid people couldn't see the cloth. So he appeared, it, he acted like he could see the invisible cloth. It's a funny story, isn't it? By the way, all of his ministers did the same thing. Because they didn't want to appear stupid because the king could see it. So therefore they wanted to appear that they could see it. The swindlers reported that the suit, when they, when they reported that it was finished, they, they came to the king They dressed the king up in this invisible cloth that supposedly that they had made. Then the emperor, he he made a big procession out of his new suit of, of, of cloth. He walked out into the town with this cloth that didn't exist. He pretended to dress up in it and goes out into the town with his new clothes. And during the procession, there was a, a, a little child that was in the crowd amongst all these hundreds of people, and he yelled out, but he has nothing on! The crowd realized the child was telling the truth. The emperor, however, he just ignored the little child and held his head up and continued to walk on like he actually did have clothes on. And as I've read that story many times, I, 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 love, I love the stories that Hans Christian Andersen wrote, those amongst others. I, I can't help but wonder if Hans Christian Andersen ever read Revelation chapter 3. Because in Revelation chapter 3, we have a church who is just like the emperor, and they were walking around thinking they were dressed, but in reality they were naked. And Jesus Christ told them they were naked. (laughs) It's not my words. Jesus told them that. They had the same exact problem that the emperor had. And we we want to see what Jesus Christ said to this church. So let's start reading in Revelation 3, verse 14. Revelation 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, Miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And white garments that you may be clothed. 
that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. First of all, I, I want us to look at Christ City. The message today has everything to do with Jesus Christ and his message to the churches. But I want you to see Christ City, first of all. This is one of Christ City's. And there's some interesting things you need to know about this city as a little bit of a background, if you will, to understand what Christ is saying here. What do you need to know about this city? Well, number one, Christ is talking to the church that was in Laodicea. Laodicea was nearly impregnable because of the surrounding mountains, but it was vulnerable because it was almost completely dependent on others for its water. They had to pipe in the water, if you will. They had to pipe in hot water from Heropolis. I don't know how well you can see this. Here's Laodicea right here. Heropolis is right there. It was close, in fact. Uh, it was about six miles or ten kilometers to the northeast. They also piped in cold water from the city of Colossae, which was about ten miles or sixteen kilometers to the east. And if you know anything, if you had to, you know, if you imagine trying to pipe in water to your little town or city, by the time the water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. The city served as the judicial seat of the district. Its location was at a very important travel intersection, and as a result of that, it made it a great commercial and financial center. Now, you say, well, why am I even bothering to mention these things? Because if you understand just a few things about the city, you'll understand why Jesus Christ is saying what he is to this this particular church that was located in Laodicea. So number one, they had lukewarm water. Number two, they were a great commercial and financial center. And number three, the city was an important manufacturing center. The, man, the, the major product was a widely sought after very soft wool. It was, it was a glossy black wool in, in, in its color. The wool was woven into fabrics for local use as well as exported to other places. Apparently it was quite rare to have this silky black wool used in, used in clothing. And so that made, amongst other things, this city an important city. But number four, it was a famous, the, the city had a famous school of medicine. This medicine school developed an ISAV that supposedly cured eye diseases. So these four things made the city a very important city, made it a wealthy city. As, as a result of the commerce and the manufacturing, the medicine, 
uh, all these things combined together made Laodicea a very wealthy city. So that's the kind of city we're talking about here. This is the kind of place that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus Christ is talking about. Second of all, let's look at Christ's description here in verse 14. First of all, we see the Lord Jesus Christ describe himself as the Amen, or the Amen, however you want to say it. We see that in verse 14 there. That unique title is used only here in Scripture to describe Jesus Christ. Uh, typically, we say amen to make, when we say amen, you know, if someone's preaching and, and the preacher says something that's true, we would say amen. Well, maybe you don't, but some churches do that. Why do you do that? Why do you say amen to things? Because you're agreeing with the statement. Amen is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, means truth, affirmation, or certainty. It refers to something that is firm, it's fixed, it's unchangeable. So Jesus is saying, I am the one who is firm, I am the one who is fixed, I am unchangeable, I am the truth, and because of that there is great certainty. Number two, the second description Jesus gives of himself here, he, he identifies himself as the faithful and true witness. He's completely trustworthy. Jesus is perfectly accurate in all ways, in his testimony, in his words, in his life, everything he does is perfect. His testimony is always reliable. Of course, Jesus Christ himself said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, why is this important? Why would Jesus bother when he talks to churches why would he bother to say that he is the truth, that he is reliable, that his witness is true? Well, since the main indictment against this church here is lukewarmness, Christ's attributes of sincerity and truth are coming really to the forefront as he's dealing with this, with this church and these allegations this isn't just something that's, that's uh, superficial. We're, we're, we're looking at, at things that have substance here. Jesus Christ is the one who is reliable. He's true. He sees into their hearts. He knows the truth. And what he says is true. Even though apparently some of the people, even the majority of the people in this church, maybe would like to argue with Jesus Christ. Number three, look at the third description that Jesus gives of himself here. He referred to himself as the beginning of God's creation. Now, English translations uh, <clears throat> might mislead you, maybe. Hopefully not, but they might. Uh, as a result of that, some false teachers have tried to use phrases like this and other phrases to deny Christ's deity. They like to, you know, you, you see that phrase there in, in verse 14, the end of verse 14. See, he's the beginning of the creation of God. Now, some, some false teachers will use those kind of phrases, and they'll say, see, see, Jesus was created. But that's not what it's saying, okay? Jesus was never created. Jesus has always been. He is God. Nobody ever created God. 
but false teachers like to use phrases like that. So let me let me try to make sure we're all clear on this. Okay. Uh, the in the Greek text, there's absolutely no uncertainty here on what this means. So let me try to explain here. The word beginning here does not mean that Christ was the first person that God created. No, that's not what it means. What it means is that Christ is the source or the origin of creation. That's what it means. He is the source or the origin of creation. In other words, Christ is the one who created everything. So by, by that phrase there, the beginning of the creation of God, he's the origin. He's the source of everything you see in this universe. That's what it means. It's through his power everything was created. And, and the word firstborn there refers to the something that is supreme or something that is of preeminence, of first importance. Therefore, you could say it this way, Christ is the source of creation. He is the supreme person of all creation. That's how it could be translated there. And so this is really giving Christ the authority here to come to his churches and to come to us and rebuke us because he's the source. He is the authority. Speaking of Christ's rebuke, let's look at Christ's rebuke. Because Christ could see into the heart of individuals. He sees into our hearts. He knows our sin. He sees the sin that was here in in this church, and he gives them a rebuke in verse 15. He says, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot, I I could wish you were cold or hot. Apparently there's nothing for Christ to commend this church. Most of the churches, Christ did give them a commendation. He commended them for things. But in this case, he doesn't do that. He, He just launches directly into his concerns. Christ rebuked them here. Did you notice what he rebuked them for? That might be... Be, seem a bit odd to you, but he rebukes them for being neither cold nor hot. They weren't cold and they weren't hot, but what were they? They were lukewarm. And he's using this metaphorical language here, which they could have understood, because remember, they had to pipe in the hot water and the cold water from other places, and by the time that hot and cold water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. They understood what Christ was saying. You say, well, Christ says, okay, you're neither cold nor hot, but what is he talking about here? What does he mean by hot people? Well, here's what one commentator said. This might help you out. It's on the screen. Sorry, it's a bit hard to read with that light. But anyway, here's what he said. He said, hot describes a person characterized by healthy spiritual fervor. The picture is of, of one who has been heated to a boiling point by some outside source and has maintained that state. The temperament of this church left much to be desired by way of devotion to Christ. End quote. So that's what a hot person is. Of course, Christ wishes we would all be like that. Sadly, many people in churches today are not, just as these people were not. So Christ also said they weren't cold. So what is a cold person? Who are the cold people? Here's what a different commentator said. He said, Hot people are those who are spiritually alive and possess the fervency of a transformed life. 
the spiritually cold, on the other hand, are best understood as those who reject Jesus Christ. The gospel leaves them unmoved. It evokes in them no spiritual response. They have no interest in Christ, his word, or his church, and they make no pretense about it. They are not hypocrites. End quote. So Christ noticed there were no hypocrites in the church. Sadly, we would have to say there are many hypocrites in the church today. Say one thing, do another. Sometimes you can be a hypocrite the other way around, by the way. You can do things and then say things that are different to what you actually do. That's one way of being a hypocrite, but you can do it the other way as well. So we've seen what hot people are, what cold people are. And Christ said, I wish you were either one of those, preferably hot people, ones who have been transformed by Christ's gospel. But they weren't that. They were lukewarm people. What are lukewarm people? Well, here's what another commentator said. Quote, it's on the screen, the lukewarm fit into neither category. They are not genuinely saved, yet they do not openly reject the gospel. They attend church and claim to know the Lord. Like the Pharisees, they are content to practice a self-righteous religion. They are hypocrites playing games. End quote. So Jesus Christ described these kind of people in the New Testament. In fact, if you've ever read Matthew chapter 7, you will see Jesus Christ describe these very people in Matthew chapter 7. Here's what he had to say. I put it up here for you. Matthew 7, 22, many will say to me on that day. By the way, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, does this mean that everyone in this church was unsaved? <laughs> it, was everybody in the church of Laodicea unsaved? Uh, probably not. I can't say for sure. I don't think we can take Christ's message quite that far. But it does mean that there were so few Christians in the church of Laodicea that Christ didn't find it, it necessary to even acknowledge their presence. He had nothing good to say about this church. Essentially, the church had come under the dominance of people who were playing church. They were playing Christians. They weren't Christians, but they were playing like they were a Christian. Well, what was Christ's reaction? In verse 16, we see Christ's reaction to the truth. He knew these people weren't Christians. They were acting like they were Christians. Look what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's a disgusting picture, isn't it? <laughs> Christ compared their spiritual state to this city's foul, lukewarm water, and he gave this church this very shocking, powerful rebuke here. This church literally made Christ sick. By the way, who likes a, a lukewarm drink? Not me. 
I mean, why do all the dairies and the petrol stations and the grocery stores and why do they bother to put the Coca-Colas and the other fizzy drinks and all the other drinks we can drink, why do they bother to put them in refrigerators? Because we don't like drinking lukewarm Coca-Cola, do we? It's kind of disgusting. We would prefer to have it cold, right? Or we prefer our drinks hot, like coffees and teas and hot chocolates. I don't know about you, I don't like drinking a lukewarm tea either, for that fact. We like it either hot, we like it cold. We typically don't drink them lukewarm. And guess what? Christ doesn't like a church that is lukewarm either. He literally says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. His determination to cast out this kind of a church was, by the way, wasn't something that was final. It wasn't final. There's still room for repentance. There was still room for them to become Christians, for them to be revived. But the situation here was obviously very, very serious. He says, I'm about ready to vomit you out of my mouth. He hadn't done it yet. But unless they changed, there would be a day coming when he would do so. In verse 17, we see Christ's eye-opener. By eye-opener, I mean that what Christ had to say was very revealing. Their eyes were opened, <laughs> just as in that story about the, the emperor who had no clothes on. People in the, in the, in the town there, were, eyes were opened as the kids said, Hey, the king doesn't have any clothes on. Well, they realized, okay, I'm not the only one thinking this way. So their eyes were open to the truth in verse 17. The Laodiceans' lukewarmness was compounded by their self-deception. Just as the king was self-deceived and his ministers and others in the town were self-deceived, thinking that, he, that the king had this beautiful cloth on his body when in reality he was naked, so too these people were naked. They were self-deceived. Their self-assessment was wrong. And Christ gives them the accurate self-assessment. This church was blind to its own needs. It was unwilling to face the truth. Yet, honestly, or, or I, should say, I, I should say, honesty is the beginning of true blessing. I mean, just think about it. In order to become a Christian to begin with, you have to be honest with your true condition, don't you? You have to be honest with the truth that you are a sinner, you stand condemned before a holy God, and unless you believe in that Savior, Jesus Christ, you will die without hope and spend eternity in the lake of fire. Honesty is the starting point of true blessing. And so as we admit what we are, as we confess our sins and we receive from God all that we need, then, then we can be blessed. Now this is a good lesson for us to learn, isn't it? Because if, if we want God's best for our lives, if we want God's best for our church, for our families, well, we have to be honest with God. We have to let God be honest with us. And when God reveals our true state, when God reveals the condition of our heart, we have to see what God sees. Here's the problem, though. We don't always do that, do we? 
Sometimes we read the Bible or we listen to a sermon or we read a Christian book and God shows us our heart. And then we sit there and, and, we, and we say, ah, that's not me. That's not me. The Holy Spirit convicts us and we sit there and we say, no, that, that can't be me. That's, that's, you know, that's the other person sitting a couple chairs down from me. That, that can't be me. No. We do that all the time. That's not good, is it, when we do that? Well, this church had two problems which Christ showed them. At least two problems, but the two that we see here is that, number one, they were content with their material wealth. They were content with their material wealth because we see in verse 17, uh, in verse 17 it says, Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. They were rich. And they knew it. They were rich and they knew it. By the way, just think about this for a moment. Because you ever wondered why it is, I would love for all of you to go to the Solomon Islands one day. Go and see people who are, who are desperate for God. Why are they desperate for God? Because they know they need God because they have nothing. They have nothing. They have no money. There's some fish in the ocean. There's a few coconuts up in the palm trees. But that's basically all they have. That's about all they have. They're poor. <laughs> They're not like us in New Zealand. They're not rich. The church in New Zealand has gone to sleep or is dead and is lifeless. And a lot of that has to do with our material wealth. Generally speaking, the countries around the world that have great material wealth the church is dead. It's asleep. But where often the church is on fire for God is in places where they don't have material wealth. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like praying that God would make New Zealand a poor third world country. What's more important? You say, no, no, please don't do that. What's more important? Your spiritual health? Or our physical health? Our economic health? What's more important? I hope we can all agree the spiritual health is far more important because Jesus said, what does it profit a man if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? So they were content with their material wealth, but number two, they were unaware of their spiritual poverty. So here they were, they had all the physical needs, they, 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 they had it all, but they were blind, if you will, to their spiritual poverty. The most important thing they were missing. <laughs> you can see this truth in Christ's words here in verse 17 when he says, You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They were spiritually poor. By the word, those words uh, pitiful or miserable is picturing one worthy of extreme pity because he's in peril of eternal death if he should remain in that present state <laughs> oh they were they were in a bad state if they died in that state they would spend eternity in hell that's their condition and the word poor means one who crouches and cowers as a beggar because he is a beggar they were rich physically but spiritually they were beggars the word blind there means the inability to see spiritual values they just they could not see the things that Christians should be able to see. So 
That's what Christ told them. And so Christ gives them some counsel in verses 18 and 19. The Lord Jesus Christ could have instantly destroyed this church that was filled with these unbelieving people, but praise God, God is loving. He is long-suffering. He is the God of second chances. Instead, He graciously offered them genuine salvation. And so Christ's threefold appeal here is playing on these three features that the city of of Laodicea was most noted for. What were they noted for? They were noted for their wealth, for their wool, and their eye salve. And so look what Jesus says here in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me. Notice Jesus is pointing them in the right direction. He's saying, come to me. Buy from me. What? Number one, gold refined in the fire that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Christ offers them what they needed. He offered them these three things. Number one, spiritual gold, spiritual clothes, and spiritual sight. You say, okay, I don't get it. What's that talking about? What is Christ really offering them? He's not offering them, you know, the kind of gold you put on a ring. That's not the kind of gold he's offering them. He's not offering them clothes that you have on your body right now. He's offering them true salvation, which is why he says you have to come to me, Jesus said. Because salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. First of all, we see they needed spiritual gold. They needed spiritual gold. Christ counseled them to buy gold that was free of all impurities. It was, it's representing this priceless riches of saving faith. 1 Peter 1 verse 7 says, where Peter wrote of a faith that was more precious than gold. You understand that if you die without Christ, you spend eternity in, a, in the lake of fire place of horrible torment and torture. So what is Christ doing there? He's offering them a a pure, true salvation that would bring them into a true relationship with Him. That is the greatest need they have. That's the greatest need we have. True relationship with Christ. They needed spiritual gold. Number two, they needed spiritual clothes. Christ counseled them to buy these white garments. White represents purity. Why did they need these white garments? By the way, remember, what kind of garments did they make? Was it white? No. It was black. Do you find the irony in that? They were known for black clothes. And Christ says, you need to buy white clothes, pure white clothes. The city's black wool symbolized their their filthy, sinful conditions, which, of course, could only be, be remedied by Christ's white robe of righteousness. These white clothes are symbolizing the righteous deeds that that always accompany one who has genuine saving faith. Notice what this next verse says about Christians in heaven. Look look at this. In Revelation 19, verse 8, it says, It was granted her, that's talking about the church, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the what? The righteous deeds of of the saints. So I'm not just making this up, okay? I'm not, I'm not just pulling this off the top of my head. Revelation 19 says, these white robes 
are the righteous deeds of the saints or the Christians. So not only did they need the spiritual gold, not only did they need the white robes of righteousness, number three, they needed spiritual sight. Finally, Christ offered them this eye salve to anoint their eyes so that they might see. They thought they could see. They, they thought they were known for eye salve. But in the Bible, you need to understand that blindness represents a, a lack of knowledge in regards to our spiritual state. You say, where is that in the Bible? Well, 2 Corinthians 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So if somebody is blinded, spiritually speaking, they can't see Christ. They can't see the gospel. Like all unbelieving people, the Laodiceans desperately needed Christ to open their eyes, just like Acts 26 talks about. Look, look, here's what the Lord said to the Apostle Paul in Acts 26. He says, I have appointed you, he said, to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. So they needed spiritual sight. Number four, they needed they needed zeal. <clears throat> they needed zeal. Because in, in verse 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He says, Therefore be zealous. Be zealous. This is a continuous command, by the way. We are to continuously be zealous for God. Every Christian ought to embrace fervency as a, a habit of life. Fervency is not something you should just do on a Sunday morning or a Thursday night Bible study or a ladies' Bible study on a Tuesday night, or whenever you go to a Bible conference, or whenever you witness to somebody, fervency and passion for God must be a habit of your life 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Lukewarm indifference makes Christ sick. But if you're fervent, if you're zealous for what Christ wants to see in our lives and in our churches, then he's going to be pleased. What else did they need? They needed repentance. They needed repentance because if you look at the end of verse 19, it says, therefore be zealous and do what? He told them to repent. Not just be zealous, but he said to repent. In repentance, the sinner turns from his sin, has a change of mind in regards to his sin. But it's not just enough to turn from the sin because you have to understand repentance is, is a 180-degree turn. You, you, you've been thinking this way in regards to your sin, but now it's, it's turning from the sin, and it's, it's not just turning from something, but repentance is turning to something else. It's seeing your sin as God sees it and seeing God as he is and loving him instead of loving your sin. That's what repentance is. Well, here's the way Martin Lloyd-Jones said it. If you're wondering what repentance is, I like the way he put it. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, quote, Repentance means that you realize that you are a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, and that you are hell-bound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it, and that you turn back on it in every shape and form. 
you renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world in its mind and outlook as well as its practice, and you deny yourself and take up the cross and go after Christ. So it's not enough to just hate your sin, to see your sin differently. But it's also denying yourself, taking up your cross, and going after Christ. So here's the bottom line. Here's the rubber meeting the road, so to speak. Here's the summary. Jesus says, be zealously pursuing the repentance that leads to eternal life. This church wasn't doing that. They weren't zealously pursuing repentance that leads to eternal life. And the Lord followed this call to repentance here in verse 19 with with a gracious invitation in verse 20. We see Christ's invitation in verse 20. The invitation in verse 20 goes this way. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So what is Jesus saying here? What is his invitation? We need to be clear on this because if you're like me, you may have heard well-meaning people, like I did when I was growing up, well-meaning people saying, hey, Jesus, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking and you need to let him in. You ever heard that? I did. Let me, let me explain what's going on here, okay? Uh, and I'm not even going to just give it in my own words. Look what this commentator said. Quote, this, this commentator said this, While most commentators have taken this invitation as addressed to lapsed, half-hearted Christians, the terminology and context suggests that these Laodiceans were for the most part mere professing Christians who lacked authentic conversion to Christ. End quote. So is Jesus talking to a group of backslidden Christians here? No. He's not talking to backslidden Christians. These are people who profess to be Christians, but they lack authentic authentic conversion to Christ. Now what is this door that Jesus Christ is talking about? Because he says, I stand at the door. That's important to understand this, so let me help you out here. Here's what another commentator said. He said, quote, Though this verse has been used in countless tracts and evangelistic messages to depict Christ knocking on the door of the sinner's heart, it is broader than that. The door on which Christ is knocking is not the door to a single human heart, but to the Laodicean church, end quote. Because remember, who's, who's Christ talking about here? He's not talking to one person, is he? He's talking to a church. Well, people who are supposed to be a church, they weren't actually a church because they weren't Christians. But they were meeting as a church, if you will. He's talking to the whole group. And he's saying, I'm knocking on the door of your group. Well, here's what Dr. Thomas says. He, he said that this views a legitimate secondary application. But its primary view is a bit different. Here's what he says. He writes, quote, The primary reference of Christ standing at the door and knocking must be to to his eschatological or end times coming that is pictured as imminent throughout these messages. Because of his long suffering, he keeps on knocking, but at some point, unknown to human beings, 
that knocking will come to an end and he will enter earth's scene once again, end quote. My friends, Jesus is coming again. We don't know when, but he's coming again. And anybody who tries to come up with dates is a fool. He's coming. It may be soon, sooner than you think, I hope. That's a good point there. That he, he's talking about the whole context of Revelation. And so what does Jesus mean when he says that I will dine? That's an interesting phrase. I will dine with him. Christ's offer to dine with this uh, hopefully repented church is speaking of, 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 uh, of fellowship. It's speaking of communion. It's, it's speaking of intimacy, which is why we hopefully are inviting each other over each other's homes. When you invite somebody to your home and you, you share a dinner, you share a lunch or breakfast with that, that, that person or that group, it's a special time, isn't it? There's, there's intimacy when you eat together and you're fellowshipping together within your home and around the table. That's the idea here. It's symbolizing this special fellowship, communion, and intimacy that Christ wants to have with us. You have to understand what it was like for somebody in, in the ancient times to have a meal together. It was union of people coming together. It was showing love to one another. Uh, I mean, it was it was had far greater significance back then than it even does today. If you shared a meal with someone else, then, well, it was great communion. Let's put it that way. So the Lord Jesus Christ is urging them to repent, first of all, but he's, he's also saying, I want to have fellowship with you. I want to have fellowship with you before this time of judgment is to come and before it's too late. Repent. So Christ gives them a promise. He says, if you do repent, I have a promise for you. Verse 21 gives the promise. He says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What a great promise that is. Just to enjoy fellowship with Christ should be enough for us. And that, that's one of the things that Fanny Crosby looked forward to the most. You, re, you, you read her songs in the hymn book. Fanny Crosby was blind, and, and some of the songs she, she writes, and she says, I look forward to the day when my eyes will be open and I get to see King Jesus. That was one of the first things she wanted to see. That ought to be enough. But Christ offers us far greater blessings than even that. He gives us more than even himself. Can you grasp what he's offering here? I, I, I really, I, I don't think I can. Probably you can't either. He's offering every believer the blessing of sitting with him on his throne. Can you grasp that? Can you even imagine sitting on the king of kings throne? Sitting on his throne? I can't imagine him even offering it to me. But that's what he's doing. Not as a permanent possession, but even, even, even to sit on it for a for a millisecond is an amazing thing. The creator of the universe is saying that he's going to delegate some of his ruling authority to the overcomers, to a conqueror. You say, well, how do I be an overcomer? How can I be a conqueror? 
What is a conqueror? What is an overcomer? That's the one who conquers in reference to, to the Christian here. For one thing, you need to be a Christian. Because a Christian overcomes death and sin. For everyone who has an ear, the Bible says, let him hear. My friends, you are exhorted to hear what the creator of the universe, the head and the source of the church, says to the churches. The message to a non-Christian should be obvious. If you're a non-Christian, the message is repent and open up to Christ before it's too late. Because, my friend, judgment day is coming. Judgment day will fall. You won't be able to avoid it. To the Christian, the message or the implication is that we have to be uh, compassionately calling those who are religious but lost to repent and receive salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Because there is no other way of salvation. So may the Lord help us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let's pray.